before we get started here in part four, I think, may, I don't remember if I mentioned it last week, but it keeps popping up in my head over and over throughout the week, that when God said, if my people who are called by my name will repent and basically obey him, then everything was going to be okay. There was a condition. God has promises all throughout Scripture. Oh, I'll be with you. You're going to be fine. It's going to be wonderful if you obey. And if we do not, then bad things are going to happen. And I think that we have a tendency to think that it's like, hey, we're doing our, I'm doing my best. I mean, I'm not drugging and I'm not doing this. But the world, look at all the abortion and the homosexuality and all that stuff going on. That's why this is happening. No. Because God knows and expects that the world was going to do that. He said, if my people do this, that tells me since that America is in trouble, his people are doing something wrong. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in this trouble. And we keep saying, well, if, if, no, but we're, no. It is if you, his people. And ultimately, if you go look through, you could find a hundred verses talking about obedience. Keeping Torah. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking salvation here. I've got to say that. I'm not talking about if you, you know, keep the Sabbath and you're doing the festivals and you're not drinking and you're not smoking, that now you're a Christian. Uh-uh. Remember, there are Orthodox Jews who don't do any of those things who are not getting to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this. God has given us directive for the blessings to be on this country. And if it's not happening, it means we are not receiving those blessings because we are not obeying him. We're not standing up for truth. And so that should be a check for not us, just us individually, but corporately as Christians. And I think that we can see that. I do a lot of talking about how the church is all messed up. And I'm not talking about any single denomination. I'm talking about all denominations how they are messed up. And it is time that they wake up. And we cannot continue to... Well, yeah, that's the problem. They are woke. That's right. So we need to keep praying and we need to keep fasting and we need to keep encouraging our brothers and sisters to take stands for truth and for the Word of God because this mess is because His people haven't been doing what they're supposed to be doing. So, all right, um, I best get going. Wow, I'm already at quarter two almost here. Esther 4 is where we're at here tonight, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, we're going to get through two chapters tonight. We've already seen how Haman has handed over the Jews to death, or, you know, for death. Haman is a picture of the devil. Esther is a picture of the church, or specifically the, you know, Israel. We see Mordecai as a picture of Jesus, and we're going to get that even more clearly here tonight. And that King Ahasuerus is a picture of God the Father. And that that analogy fits almost every verse of this entire book. It's just remarkable to me. And so... Um, Last week we kind of closed out because the Jews and the people of Susa were bewildered that this edict had taken place to 
uh, basically mark their destruction. And that could be our future as Christians as well. That we might wake up some morning and all of a sudden go, what, what happened overnight? And you think, I just don't see that, how that could happen. Hey, I'll tell you, I didn't see how half of what's happened in the last year and a half could happen as quickly as it did. But I think that that's slow, too. You know, Jesus talks about birth pains. They get faster and faster and faster. I think that we're going to see things even happen faster than what we've seen this last year and a half, possibly. It's not the first time in history. May 1934, there were, you know... Millions of Jews that woke up one morning, picked up their newspaper to see a headline reading, Jewish murder plan against Gentile humanity revealed. In it, basically they talked about what were called the blood libels, where the Jews were being falsely accused of stealing children, and I mentioned this last week, to use as blood sacrifices for their Passover. I mean... First of all, that would be unclean. It makes absolutely no sense that they would do that. Saintness, yes, but Jews, no. But that's what the headlines were saying. Imagine waking up someday and you see that you are public enemy number one. We're already seeing it being alluded to. There was already anti-Semitic attitudes in society before these headlines came about too. Um, March 1935 article here. They show this hand gripping a, a serpent. Notice the serpent looks very much like a Jew. It's got the Jewish nose, all of that. And in the article it read, Don't grow weary. Do not lose the grip so this poisonous serpent may not slip away. Better that one strangles it to death than our misery begins anew. Prediction. We are already have been pointed out as Christians don't fear death and so you know they don't wear masks and we're the problem and we're going to be the ones spreading this COVID and now we have Oregon doing this you know passport and you're not allowed in church unless you can prove you've been vaccinated without if you don't have a mask on that if people don't wear those masks you are going to be the reason COVID is spreading. You are the one that is spreading this misery anew. And people are going to be told that we need to get a grip on this. We need to get a grip on these Christians. Don't know, but it's a very real possibility. Because what they did is they portrayed in Nazi Germany that this is what was best for society and best for humanity. I mean, that's coming right out of our headlines pretty much today as well. So, as we get into Esther, I want you to understand, this is real. This is more real for you than I think you might even realize. And we need to keep that urgency. Do not grow weary. Do not fall asleep. We need to be awake. You know, one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 57, talks about Death, and I, it said in verses 1 and 2, No one, the righteous are taken away and no one understands. Devout men are taken away and no one ponders it in his heart that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. If you start losing loved ones, 
don't get mad at God. Maybe he's doing good. Second, it continues to move on and it says, those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Now I was thinking about that today. I mean, that's, that's probably one of my favorite verses outside of my life verse there. Because, and I don't know if this sounds bad or not, but I can't wait. I can't wait to be with the Lord because I get tired of working. And I'm not talking shoveling dirt. I, I'm talking just living life sometimes. Not because I'm depressed, but I see all the pain and the suffering and I see all these people who don't know the Lord and, and just refuse. And I see all of these Christians who are good people that are struggling with, whether it be sin or physical or mental uh, ailments. It's just like, oh Lord, I just want it to end. Because that wears heavy on my heart. And someday, if I make it before you do, and you come to my funeral, I want you to know, I have found rest. And I want it to be the greatest praise opportunity you've ever had. I want you guys to be belting it out because that's what I'm going to be doing. And I think the other thing, I, I was just thinking about it today. They find rest as they enter into death. That means we're not to be at rest right now. We are supposed to be standing up and fighting. It is supposed to be hard work. And we're going to see that here today, today as we get into this. We are not to be waltzing in to our promised land. God has put us here to work. We are servants of Christ Jesus. And we're supposed to be doing something. Not just planning our next vacation. Not, and it's okay to have a vacation. I saw that look. It's okay to have a vacation, but I'm telling you that if that's where our heart is at and our mindset is constantly finding rest and peace here now, then we need to check our spirit. That is not why we're here. It is time to keep that urgency in mind. And so, verse 2 continues here. He went out only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When they saw... That doom was ahead. I, I'm going to misquote this a little bit, but it's going to be very close. Proverbs something, 16 to 20, somewhere in there, maybe 23. 31 chapters. So yeah. Close says that a righteous man sees trouble and takes refuge, but a fool keeps on going and suffers for it. They saw trouble ahead, and they didn't continue to just keep on going. They began to take refuge, and how did they do that? 
by fasting, by praying, by mourning, wailing, ashes. They went, oh yeah, this is tough. Okay, where should we go this weekend? Right? Guys, I'm telling you, we need to keep diligently seeking and calling out to God because I don't need a crystal ball. I've got the Bible, and the Bible is accurate 100%. We are not headed towards anything good. Now is not the time to sleep. 22-3, thank you. That's an important verse. I, I like that, especially just if we are righteous, if we are being smart, you see trouble coming, you need to take refuge. You need to do something about it. And that is what's going on here. This is their response to the edict. Now, by the way, it wasn't storing up food and all of that. I'm not saying that's bad either. What I'm saying is the key being repent. Repentance, to get their hearts right. The best way to take refuge is to be having your heart and mind fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is what God wants. He wants us to turn to Him. And we see in Scripture that He often, well, we see it many times, He allows trouble to come. Why? For this goal. So that we will turn to Him. That's His desire. It continues, uh, I want to show you Joel 2 verse 12 saying basically the same thing. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Repentance, fasting, weeping, mourning, these are the things. When people do this, there is a promise of relenting on the calamity. So, I have to admit my lack of faith, not in God, but in people, and in modern day Christianity, that we're going to do this. But I, I can make you a promise, if we do, if the church would repent of all this acceptance of homosexuality and, and this wokeness and all of these things and just start standing up for Jesus and just live, God will relent of this calamity. We will have more time. I just, and God knows whether we will or won't, but you know what I mean. You know, Noah uh, sent something here and not to make this a big deal or whatnot, but he wants to maybe read the Bible in a month. There's a program to read the whole Bible in a month. Now, up in maybe a year and a half ago, I would have thought, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. There's no way you can do that. My brother Wes just read it 13 times through in one year. He read it. His goal was to read it 12 times, and he ended up doing it 13 times in a year. And some of the advantages of that, as Noah was saying in this article, is that Nobody would read the Odyssey or some other big book throughout a year's time, let alone most of the time it doesn't even take people a year. It takes them 5, 10, 15, 20 years to read the whole thing. 
But imagine reading one of those books in a year's time. How much are you going to get out of it? How much are you going to retain the whole story? You don't. And so by reading the whole thing through, you're going to get the Bible in a different picture. And I would say, I mean, it says it takes about an hour a day of reading to do that. I think for me it's going to be a little bit more than that. But even if it does, how many of you do not have an hour and a half of your day on average, and really this is only six days a week that you're reading it, that maybe you are on Facebook, YouTube, television, twiddle in your thumbs, whatever the case might be, that you couldn't get an hour and a half out of that, out of your day somehow. It's like, it is sad that we typically, as Christians, can't find an hour and a half out of a 24-hour day to give to God. No wonder we're here, where we are. And, and I'm speaking to myself here too, by the way. Okay, I, I'm not just bad, bad people here. All right? It's a wake-up call for all of us, I hope. But anyway, um, he wants us to rend our hearts. Not just talk about it. Today, Daniel Joseph was talking about Cain, and one of the reasons that Cain, you know, his offering was not accepted. We have all these different theories out there, and he talks about how it's so much deeper than the idea that he didn't offer blood. And the uh, Aramaic, the, the Jewish uh, Targum, basically, it's called the Aramaic version of the scriptures, show that his heart was not right. And it wasn't, and we see that throughout all of the Old Testament, there are many times the Israelites were offering exactly what God told them to offer. And God says basically the same thing to them that he said to, to Cain. I, I, your offering is terrible. Away, Amos, anyway, says, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Though you bring me grain offering, burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will have no regard for them. Even though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will pay them no regard. Why? Because they were doing everything that was looking good, but their hearts were wrong. And that's why we rend our heart. And I'm not convinced that where we are as a church in America right now, that we have rent our hearts yet. We're concerned about things. We're worried about our 401k. We're worried about having enough food. But have we rent our hearts to seek Him? Verse 4, Then Esther's eunuch and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai. She was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So keep in mind, Mordecai is a picture of Jesus. Remember what Jesus, I mean, his disciples were constantly saying, you need rest, you need rest. And he'd say, I have food you know not of. Or he would say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Because when Jesus came, he was on a mission. 
as Jamie Walden would say, he, he had a mission set. Guys, I think we're supposed to have a mission set. And we see that Mordecai had the opportunity to be comforted, but he refused. He refused to be comforted because he was going to get down in the trenches. Will we? Moses, another example of that. Remember Moses, taken out of the river Nile. He's being raised up by uh, you know, Pharaoh's daughter, possibly um, uh, Sobek Neferu. I don't know for sure, but archaeologically speaking, a good chance it was Sobek Neferu. Sobek Neferu was a um, barren woman, and there was no heir to the throne. And I always wondered why in the world would Pharaoh, who's killing all the Jews, allow his daughter to bring home a Jewish baby? It's not like she was bringing home a puppy, right? Daddy, can I keep it? Oh, sure, it's cute. No, this is the enemy. And without giving you the whole presentation of Pharaoh's, bottom line is, here is a woman who is barren, and she's bringing home a Hebrew child that now could be heir to the world because they believe that oftentimes the Nile River would basically give you the gods and that they believe that Happy, the name of the fertility god, actually birthed them. So there's pictures in Egypt of pharaohs basically being birthed on a birthing stool. And it's a god sitting on the birthing stool. Well, they worship the Nile River, Happy. And so now Happy has produced a child to be an heir to the throne. Well, anyway, so he's raised as a king. I mean, he's, he's got it all. But as scripture says, he chose not to take the comforts of life to help his people and to follow God. And that, that's just impressive to me. He had every opportunity, just like you guys all today have an opportunity to live a pretty peaceful, rich life here in America. Well, will you choose that or will you choose to follow the Lord? To get your rest later. I've said this before, I know, but when I think about being concerned about the affairs of this world, one of the things that I would always use out on the streets or whatever is, what do you hope to be doing 10 years from now? And they all have an answer. And it's, you know, hopefully you're going to have a nicer car, a beautiful spouse, you know, big house. What do you hope to be doing 20 years from now? Oh, man, lots of money. Maybe even going to early retirement. Uh, you know, I'm going to have a boat. And how about 70 years from now? Well, I'm going to be retired. How about 150 years from now? Well, I'll be dead. How about 200 years, 300, 500, 1,000, a million years? Because you see, you're not dead, you're alive. And we spend all of this time training up our children to make sure they get into the right stupid school. And very little time training them up for an eternity, where they will spend an eternity. And you're worried about 50 years, 70 years, whatever it might be. We should be investing in an eternity, not this little short 
blink of an eye on earth. And that is what Mordecai, that's the perspective he has here. Verse 6, So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain it to her, and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. There's only one way that this edict can go away, to go into the king's presence. In essence, what I've been telling you, there is one way the trouble of this country can go away, and that is if the church would all go into the presence of God. When we're in trouble, we need to go to God's presence to seek his help as well. We also see Esther obeying Mordecai's commands here again as well. We've already talked about her and her, her great character that is seen. It's seen once more here, being submissive to Mordecai's instructions. So, in verse 9 it continues, Hathok went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. And she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends a gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. There's a lot in here. Notice where you could not go to approach the king. In the inner court. You remember what happened to you in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle or temple, only one guy once a year could go into the inner court. If you did, without God calling you to come in, you were dead. This was the big deal that when Jesus dies on the cross, that that curtain is tore. It allowed you to have access into the most holy place, as we talked about when we studied Hebrews. Because of Yeshua... We now have access because God has extended the gold scepter to us. He's given us the okay through Jesus, ultimately. Which is interesting because it's through Mordecai that all of this is happening as well. But anyway, um, you have to be summoned by the king. Does everybody get to come to Jesus? Well, yes and no. I think everybody has the opportunity, because I think God will call everybody, but what does it say? No one can come to the Son, to Jesus, unless the Father draws him. And it also says, no one can come to the Father unless they go through the Son. Both are, again, that whole thing that Jesus is God is seen there. But nonetheless, you have to be summoned to enter into his presence, called by God. You can't believe on your own just because you want to. You have to be called to go in. We also have been in the past here looking at Matthew 22 and the parable of the wedding banquet to make a comparison here 
to Esther. And if you recall, there were those who were in the wedding banquet who did not have wedding clothes on. They really weren't invited. How did you get in without wedding clothes? And they're basically taken out to be destroyed, a picture of hell. Um, So anyway, you, you have to be called to come to the throne. As I was saying before, you don't just waltz in to God's presence. But this is the attitude of modern Christianity today. Oh, you said a prayer. Hey, Father God, we love you. You know, and we treat him as if we're on an equal plane with him. There's no respect. There's no reverence. There's no fear of God. There's no obedience to his commandments. Oh, I'll live my life. I, I just have to go to church and I just have to pray at night. That's it. I get to live my life the way I want to. Right? We're just going to waltz right in and enjoy life in the meantime. Eat, drink, and be merry. And then when I die, I get to go be with the Lord because Jesus loves me. That's it. That's the message of Christianity. False message. And that's, I think, what is being seen here, that this is a serious thing to go into God's presence. A very serious thing. Let's look at what Revelation says about God's throne here. Um, Actually, before I do, one other thing here. It's been 30 days since she was called to go into the king's presence. Maybe some of you kind of feel that way, that it's been a long time since you really felt like you've been in the presence of God. I said last week some of the words that are used really reflect to show that the king really truly did love Esther. But yet, even though he had love for her, she hadn't been summoned. And I know that in my life, and I suspect in yours as well, there's been a long times of what seemed to be a dry summer without feeling like I'm in the presence. And you even question sometimes, I think the devil puts that in my mind, questioning, does he even love me? But he does. You see, God's going to use you when you need to be used, and he is always there with you. He never leaves you even though you don't feel it. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I'm sure that many of the Jews felt, where is God at this point? Although you're going to see Mordecai knows different. When, hey, there's an edict out that we're going to die. Maybe that happens in America someday. Don't forget, he has not left you behind. And the time will come and you'll hear his voice again. Anyway, just a little side note there. But let's look at what Revelation says about the throne of God. And uh, just kind of as we look at this, see, does this sound like a place that you'd want to go to uninvited? Just waltz into? After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and was with someone sitting on it. The one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white 
and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were the four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Not an environment to just waltz into. Holy, holy, holy. We don't even understand that word. And yet this is the description of the throne. This is kind of what we're seeing as King Ahasuerus is sitting on his throne and Esther is meekly coming in, hoping that the scepter will be extended. Knowing that he has the power to kill her. So back to Esther, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Don't think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Reminds me of the watchman on the wall in Ezekiel. It talks about we are to be watchmen. And when we see somebody in their sin, we are to call them out and say, stop. And if they listen, you save their soul. If they don't listen, they will perish, but you live because you did what you were supposed to. Well, and, and if you don't call that out, yeah. then yeah, and if you don't call out, that's right, so that everyone here can hear, you don't call somebody out in sin, it says then the blood be on your head as well, because you didn't warn them. And I want that to be a lesson for all of us here in two ways. Not only are we supposed to be willing to confront one another in sin, but that means if somebody does confront you in sin, don't take it personal. Take it as a blessing. You know, Proverbs talks about that too, about a wise man accepts a rebuke. And that if somebody calls you out on something, we should be having a heart that is instructive or instructable. I think we need to have the assurance that Mordecai has here knowing that God is going to rescue them. Mordecai knew the promises of God. Hey, we might die, but God's going to raise somebody up. He was basically saying, you know what, it's okay, ultimately, if we die. That doesn't mean God is unfaithful. It just means this wasn't his plan. Remember that if you see your loved ones start dying in the next year or two. It doesn't mean God is out of control. 
He's still doing something. They've entered into rest. But we just have to trust God's promise. We just, well, I guess that wasn't how he was going to fulfill it. Deliverance is coming, regardless of what you do or don't do. It will come. If he has to raise up a donkey, he'll do it. We also can't think that just because we're Christians walking with God that you're going to be spared from trouble either. Esther was a godly woman. She said, well, yeah, you, you and your family might die. Who knows what God's going to do, but hey, if we die, we die. We start living is what's going to do. Logan, that's going to stick with me forever. I, I just such a simple thing, but so true. When we die, that's when we start living. The other thing is, Esther's choice has consequences far beyond Esther. The whole community will suffer because she wouldn't stand up if that was her choice. Just like Achan's sin, the whole community, even godly people, seem to have suffered in Achan's sin. Let me tell you, we as Christians walking after the Lord are suffering because other brothers and sisters in Christ are sleeping. We suffer along with the community. That's why church discipline is so important. If we don't practice church discipline, we simply propagate more sin. And you will suffer for it. You may see it as unloving to approach people in sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's the most loving thing you could do for them. I would say a good example of this is that, again, Esther being a picture of the church, Esther has a choice to make. I can go in and put my life at stake and die, or I can just trust in God, hope for the best. That in our day, you might say this, we have a choice to keep our faith personal or to live it loudly. I know that my grandma and grandpa, even my mom and dad, the way they grew up, their faith was just a very personal thing. A lot of the older generation, we see that, where they just don't, they're not comfortable talking about the Lord, not comfortable sharing their faith. It's a personal thing. Hey, I believe my grandma and grandpa are in heaven. There's not a doubt in my mind about it. They loved the Lord and they lived it. I think I may, I, I was just telling my father-in-law, I remember my, my grandpa Frank, we had 3,000 acres of wheat in eastern Montana that was ready to harvest. I mean, like the, the combines are ready to go. And he watched a, a hailstorm level it all. And he just said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Let's go do some fencing. We have to live out our faith. It cannot be just a personal thing. If Esther kept it personal, the rest would have died. Maybe she would have been spared but the rest would have died. 
as he says, who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That made me think, wow. Each and every one of you guys sitting here, who knows that God hasn't had you be born at this time of history, in this location of the world, for such a time as what we are entering into. That each of us has a calling. I don't know how God is going to use me. But I can tell you this, his eyes are searching the earth looking for one whom he can use. It says that in scripture. If you have a willing heart to be used, I think he's going to use you. And I don't think just for your benefit, but for the benefit of many. So, rather than me maybe saying, you've got a job to do, maybe I should say this, do you have a job to do? You need to answer that question. Because Esther had to make the choice too. God may not give you a job if you don't say yes to the call. So do you? Do you have a job to do? I'm going to say yes, I do. I do. I mean, put yourself in Esther's shoes. You may die if you go. You may die if you don't go. You can try to save yourself or you can try to save others. Well, how does she respond? Verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Before she did that, she prepared her heart. Just like, remember, at Mount Sinai, before they went into the presence of God, God says, all right, for these three days you are to wash yourselves, cleanse, fast, repent. You're supposed to prepare yourself because you're about to meet God. Same thing is happening here. He says, all right, for the next three days I want you to cleanse yourself, fast, repent, pray. She didn't think, well, I'm a pretty good person, so I got this and I'll go right on you. We need to be covering one another's backs. We need to be praying for each other. Lifting one another up. Because none of us can do this on our own. None of us. And it's just a big lesson there, I think. So, as we see, she listened. And I'm sure that her flesh wanted to do otherwise... You know, courage is not being afraid, or I should say courage is not not being afraid and doing something. Courage is being afraid and doing it anyway. That's courage. We are presented with options, choices, every single day of our life. And let me tell you something, every one of those choices you make on every daily occasion can end up with either blessings or curses. Every one of them. 
So maybe we shouldn't be so quick to make our choices, but we need to examine them, our motives, seek the Lord's uh, advice, seek the scriptures to see what he says about those situations. I, as Esther being a picture of Israel, there's something interesting here, I think, is that Jesus does not come back or will not come back a second time as he told the Jews until you say Baruch Hashem Adonai blessed are you who come or blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord remember Jesus said you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord So I find that interesting. Romans kind of has some of the same type of things. It says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And then the, the saying will come true and all Israel will be saved. What I'm saying is an until Israel who Esther is a picture of, steps up to the plate to recognize there will not be deliverance. This is a, a necessary step for deliverance right here. If we just look at it as you know, Esther, just this historical figure, but if you look at it from the perspective of she's a picture of Israel, Israel is going to have to step up to the plate, repent of their sins, and seek God. Listen to Mordecai, Jesus, and then deliverance is going to start coming about. There's another verse in Romans, and it says, if their rejection was reconciliation what will their acceptance be but life from the dead speaking of Israel if their rejection and he's talking about because Israel had been rejected in part that the gospel went to the Gentiles so if their rejection means reconciliation for the world the gospel goes to them what will their acceptance be meaning the acceptance of Israel back Life from the dead. What's that mean? Resurrection. You've already been reconciled with God. If their, re if their rejection means reconciliation for the world, reconciliation is salvation, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Jesus will not come back and you will not experience the resurrection until Israel comes back. You should be praying for Israel. You should be witnessing to those Jews, not being just anti-Semitic towards them, but sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. So I think that's important. Um, so Mordecai goes away, carried out all of Esther's instructions. 
Verse chapter 5, then, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. Third day, remember what we were talking about in Hosea? That third day ought to always jump out in your mind. Third day, it's happened so often. I, a few weeks back, told you about Hosea 5 at the end of chapter 5, and then the beginning here of chapter 6. I believe this is a picture of when the Lord's coming back. And he says, after two days or 2,000 years, he will revive us so that on the third day, on, not after, he will raise us up that we may live in his presence. On the third day is when deliverance is going to come. And this is a picture, I mean, by itself, maybe it doesn't mean much to you, but maybe go back. My book on Revelation, I talk about it a lot. So on this third day, Esther, the church, is putting on her royal robes to go meet in the presence of the king. That's what's going to happen on the third day after Jesus ascended. And it says, in front of the king's hall, the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing on the, in the court, he was pleased with her, held out to her the golden scepter, or the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So why doesn't Esther die? Well, because the king was pleased with her. Okay, we're going to talk about a little bit, what is it, how, how do you please God? We, we talked about this, I think, in chapter 1 or 2. Obedience pleases God. So, in essence, it's God extending grace. But I also want you to see that she had to reach out and touch the scepter. My theology is not that God has only died or sent Jesus to die for a certain group of people on the earth. My theology is God so loved the entire world that he gave his only begotten son. And that God has extended that scepter to every single person. But there are people that by God's foreknowledge he knew are, they're not going to reach out and touch that scepter. They won't accept it. So, I just think it's important. I think that we feel sometimes like, oh, there's nothing I need to do. God has extended the scepter. He's pleased with me because I go to church and I say prayers at night. May I encourage those listening who, you know, if that's your Christianity, to examine yourself to find out if you truly are in the faith and if you truly fear the Lord and if you're walking in His ways. Because... That's not what Christianity is, just going to church and praying at night. Well, as I said, Mordecai is a picture of Jesus, and I just want to give you a rundown of a few things. Number one, he's a Jew. Number two, he will not bow down to Haman or Satan, Hasatan. <clears throat> We saw that in chapter 3 that the Israelites were called the people of Mordecai, which is interesting. 
what are we? We are the people of God, the children of God, right? Even the sign that he was crucified under said, King of the Jews, that the people belonged to him. We see that Esther was wise because she listened to the counsel of Mordecai, just like we will be wise if we listen to the word of God. John 8.31 shows Jesus saying, If you abide in my word... Now, what does that mean to abide in, in God's word? Just to read it? Just to say, yeah, I got one of these, it sits on the shelf? And not yet... Yeah, and not just read it, live in it. Live it out. That means if you're not living in obedience, not saying you're perfect, you can't be, but if you're not living with a heart to obey what's in that Bible, I don't think you're a Christian. That's point blank. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith, as Corinthians says. If it was that easy, why do we have to examine ourselves? Do you know, we talked about the mark. I shouldn't go here, I don't have much time, but bottom line, the mark of the, the beast, I believe is, in, in essence, disobedience. Because God has put a mark on us as well. The commandments. And we, we see that. The mark, put, put them on your hand. He says that when he's talking about the commandments. Write them on your forehead, put them on your hands. So the Jews took that in a literal, physical, rather than spiritual, literal sense. But if we have that mark that marks us as Christians, are the commandments. That means if we're not having a heart for those commandments, how can you have the mark of God? That's what marks you. I was listening to somebody this week, and... He was just kind of talking about, you know, the Bible, one of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Then the Catholic Church comes along and it says, oh, you don't, you don't need to worry about that. Matter of fact, we're going to change it as a sign of our authority and make it Sunday. We should all, the church should have said, thank you for identifying yourselves. <laughs> that is a spirit of Antichrist. That is lawlessness. But instead we said, okay. And now we see much of modern Christianity saying, oh, the Sabbath really isn't that important. Jesus died for all of our sins. Thank you for identifying yourselves. Proverbs 28.9, if anyone turns a deaf ear to God's law, even his prayers are detestable. If we are turning a deaf ear to the law, to the Torah of God, Something's wrong with us. Something's wrong with any church that is going to tell you it's okay to turn a deaf ear to the law of God. Now, if they're saying, hey, the law doesn't save you, I'm right there. Amen to that. But if they're saying it's okay to break the law of God and even proud of it, there's something wrong. That is not the mark of God. Anyway, John 8, 31, getting off my high horse. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I'm going to hop on again. I, 
Yeah, maybe. Do you know, I, people think I'm legalistic because I love the law of God. I have never been more free in my life. Never been more free when I began to try to obey the commandments of God. Oh, I fail all the time. I still know that that's not what saves me, but I have a desire to please my Father. And that has brought me more freedom, and I am just jealous for everybody I meet to have that same freedom. But they have to know the truth. But we have allowed so many lies to creep into the church. And here I am just trying to expose those little lies. And I am a bad person. I'm a cult leader. I'm whatever. Yeah. <laughs> John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, you know, for number four there, Israel is considered wise because they listen to Yeshua. If you are my disciples, you will do what I say. Think about it. If Esther didn't listen to Mordecai, what kind of character would that have shown? Same for us. If we don't listen to God's word, what kind of character does that show that we are as Christians? Verse 4. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. I love that. The king is pleased because Esther is an obedient disciple, you might say. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, church, you disciples, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. John 11:22 But even now I know that whatever you ask of God God will give you. John 14:13 And whatever you ask in my name that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 15:16 You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. By the way that's good works and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give you. Notice Fruit and receiving that are kind of connected. You're not going to get to sal uh, salvation by your good works, but you are going to receive blessings and answered prayers. David said this, and I think Psalm 16:33. He said, "If I had held iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to my prayers." You holding iniquity in your heart? People say, oh, I, don't, I just don't feel like God is listening to my prayers. Well, he may not be. Okay, I mean, I know that that's not very kosher to say that in, in Christianity, but no, he maybe is not listening to your prayers because you are a man of lawlessness. You don't care about the commandments of God. You're living the life you want to live. So yeah, maybe he's not listening. But Esther, up to half the kingdom. By the way, what are we going to get? The kingdom. 
5 verse 7 continues, Esther replied, My petition and my request is this, If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my requests, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Hey, Jesus has no fear in the presence of the devil. And by the way, we shouldn't either as long as we use the authority given to us. Daniel Joseph talked about this today with Cain and Abel. The message that God gave Cain was this, do right and you will, I don't remember how it worded now, if you do right, uh, you'll be commended ultimately. If you do right, Satan has no control or power over you. So, in essence, if you are walking in truth, then you have authority. But I'll tell you something, if you're not walking in truth, then you better fear the devil, boy. <laughs> right? So, that's important. But Mordecai doesn't fear at all. Well, yeah, I, that has always been a question in my mind until I started doing this study. And I have an idea. Don't know if I'm right, but this is my idea of why. Uh, in this, I'll show it to you here in the next slide or two, so I won't go off track quite yet. But, yeah, why, yeah, why a second, I mean, you could say, well, maybe she just kind of got cold feet. <laughs> Give me another day. But I think, again, this is scripture, and I think that there's a, an analogy that's coming here. Um, Satan wants our worship. And when he doesn't get it, it ticks him off. Just like Haman is enraged here. You want to put a damper on Satan's joy? Follow Yeshua's example. Nothing more ticks him off. And by obeying God, you are giving God praise... If you disobey God, that is an automatic, um, can't think of that word, uh, default. By default, you're giving Satan praise. Anytime you disobey God, Satan just got praise. Well, verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. Remember last week we talked about that, how Satan was elevated above all other angels. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. Proud, boastful. That's what Satan is. That's what the man of lawlessness is going to be. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Not good enough. He wants worship. Notice that 
Haman has surrounded himself with a lot of loyal people too. Satan has disciples. Remember Jesus even told those Pharisees in John, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, John 8 is where that comes from, I believe. But speaking boastfully, Daniel 7, 8 says, This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Where Ezekiel 28 talked about Satan being so proud of his acquisitions. And we looked at that last week. See, Satan hates Jesus more than anybody. And as a result, he hates all of the people. All the people of Mordecai. I still am amazed that when you have these radical religions that are violent and want to kill, who do they want to kill? Jews and Christians. Islam, as a perfect example... They go after you first. The Quran talks about the people of the book. And Jews and Christians are public enemy number one for them. Why? Why them? You could understand maybe Jews and, you know, the whole Israel property kind of thing. But this has been going on from day one. It's just the way Jews and Christians. Society, it's the same thing. Society has been anti-Semitic since, you know, well, time began it seems. And Christianity is always under attack. There, that ought to tell you that those religions that are against Christianity and Jews are of the devil. At this point, Haman still thinks he's winning. I kind of think that the devil, I wonder sometimes, does the devil know? I mean, he knows the word. Does he really know, or does he think that he can maybe change the course of history? The course of what's written down? I, I don't know. I would think he'd have to know that he can't. And that he's just trying to get as many to fall with him as possible. But I don't know. He is prideful, and pride makes you delusional. And so it is possible. But nonetheless, we see that that's the picture Haman is here, but he's still filled with rage. But even despite the rage, he remains confident that he has the Jews trapped. To answer that question, why twice does Esther have this banquet? I don't know, but in contemplating that, this is what I was wondering about. We see a certain pattern, or not pattern, but the best that I can come up with as far as what's supposed to happen in the end times. Is God is going to rapture us to Jerusalem. I use that word intentional, intentionally. I'm not going to get into that tonight. But we see the Bible says that everybody is going to be gathered to Jerusalem. 
God becomes a hoopah, a canopy over Jerusalem and his people, just like he was in the wilderness. A cloud by day, fire by night. He becomes a cloud and a protective canopy over Jerusalem. Then, Satan goes and gathers the world, all the nations, to come up against his people. Confident. I've got them trapped. Just like Haman is confident right now. Then the Lord goes out, and we have what is called the Armageddon battle. Now, much of Christianity thinks there's one Armageddon battle. They don't read the book of Revelation. There's two of them. You have an Armageddon battle that goes out, and we see that it is an absolute slaughter, but the devil is not killed yet. He is simply goes to uh, the abyss for a thousand years. Goes back home, you might say. After that thousand years is over, or one day... Remember this whole pattern, a day is like a thousand years. He is released again for a short time. Now, by the way, in the meantime, the false prophet and the Antichrist, they are destroyed. And they're thrown into the lake of fire. So then there's this thousand years. I don't get that. All right, I'm not even going to try right now. There are things the Bible says about it, but I, I, I don't know. All I know is that the Bible says is when that's over, after that the next day, he is released again to come up, and what does he do? He comes up against the people, and this time he is destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. That's my idea of why twice. Don't know if I'm right or not. But it's the very next day that he'll be destroyed. He thinks he's got the Jews trapped. And in essence, he doesn't. Mordecai will not bow down. The people are still safe. Verse 14, we'll close out here. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman. And he had the pole set up. So Satan is scheming, just like he is right now, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. He's going to gather the nations so that that's what this edict was doing, right? Gathering the people so that they'd fight against the Jews. He's continuing to scheme, how can I destroy Mordecai and his people? But while all that's going on, we see God is scheming too, on behalf of his people. And he's allowing Haman to do this to come to his own destruction. So, that's kind of, in a nutshell, what's going on. Now is not the time to sleep, folks. I feel like we're starting to get a little bit drowsy. Whereas a year ago, I think God had our attention but I feel like we're getting drowsy. Don't get drowsy. Wake up. We are not done with this. And 
now more than ever, we, we got to keep that fervency because things are happening. I'll leave it at that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for people like Esther who are willing to, to stand up. May we be used by you, Father. Just touch our hearts and move us to be willing to say, send me, send me. Show us, Father, the things in our lives, <clears throat> in our theology, that does not line up with Scripture. Show us things that are not God-pleasing and show us ways that we have kept our faith personal and not bold. Show us ways that we've been arrogant and unloving, that we don't make this just knowledge, but that it is truth and truth and love. So guide us in everything we do, say and think. In Yeshua's name, amen.